What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week, we talked to a guy named Kirk Nurmi. Jerry, who is Kirk? Kirk is a lawyer, or he used to be. And Man, you may awesome. know him. <laughs> you may know him from uh, such cases as Jody Arias. And I think that's the only one I know of. Which I was clueless to, but Jerry knew more about him. It's interesting to see kind of like what goes through a lawyer's head and how you always see in Hollywood that like they, they're just trying to make money. They're doing whatever they can. They don't give a shit if they're, they're guilty or innocent or anything like that. They just right. want to make money. Right. Right. Uh, this gave us a little bit more insight into it that it's not just that way. Uh, no, he just had to do it. And uh, to give you a little background for those of you who are like Grizz living under a rock, Jody Arias in 2008 uh, killed her boyfriend, stabbed him to death in the shower. And I think the case went until 2013, which we'll confirm in this episode, talking to Kirk. And, uh, you know, she was found guilty. Now she's in jail and she's incredibly manipulative. And you're going to find out as we talk to Kirk just how being her court appointed lawyer affected him and his life, which a lot of people don't give that too much thought. They watch the case and they're like, oh, this this case is wild. But no one ever thinks, uh, you know, the lawyer has some kind of a, uh, effect on his life as well. Yeah, it almost we'll find changed out. his life entirely, like to the point where he never went back. Yeah, like, he, uh, he, he doesn't practice law now, at least generally speaking. Uh, but yeah, so let's go talk to him and find out about uh, what happened. But also, before we get into the show, a few things. For those of you who don't know, we are on YouTube's. Check it out because there's a lot of stuff that we put on there that you can't tell if you're just listening. Uh, last episode, we had Rainbow 3 in the background. Yes, we did. Um, we also put in visuals. Jerry had an amazing background. So check out that. <laughs> also, our Patreon uh, this month being September. Uh, we have behind the scenes stuff. We also have um, one crazy motherfucker. An entire episode. They're just that shit crazy scientist. <laughs> and then also... <laughs> Bob, I threw a piece of wood for you. Bob's a guy on YouTube who's been giving me shit because I haven't made a desk yet. Well, it's coming together slowly. So, Bob, that piece of wood is just for you. What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Well, yeah, a lot of people know me from the high-profile case of uh, Jody Arias. You might, people might remember that back in 2013, her trial became a bit of a cultural phenomenon. They, she was involved in an on-again, off-again relationship, a, a toxic relationship uh, with her soon-to-be victim, Travis Alexander. And uh, the, back on June 4th, 2008, it was kind of a made-for-media kind of story. They um, had had a sexual escapade that afternoon, and four hours later, um, he had been killed at her hands, um, nearly decapitated, stabbed 27 times. Um, this was back in 2008. In 2013, uh, after being assigned the case as a public defender and trying hard to get out of the case so I could go into private practice and kind of get away from uh, everything that this case was going to be, even though I had no idea it would turn into what it did turn into. Um, I was uh, her lawyer and kind of the 
uh, unwitting person to uh, stand up for her uh, in her case. And, and in that I became kind of infamous. And uh, there was a lot that went on with that. And ultimately the case didn't resolve for two and a half years, which, which, made, it, which made it all the worse for me on a personal level. Well, I mean, it was a culmination of things. I mean, people, a public defender job is not the, not the highest paying. It's a high load of stress, et cetera. And to, to back up a little bit, I had been in the capital unit of the public defender's office for a year and a half, two years at that point in time when I was assigned Miss Arias' case, probably about a year and a half. And I had been to trial twice before Miss Arias' case came to resolve. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but there were a lot of people in that unit who hadn't been to trial for a year. Death penalty cases tend to resolve like a lot of other cases. And I just kind of had a bad luck. And the ultimate reality was that death penalty cases, even the shortest one I went to trial on was close to four months. And they take up a big part of your time, big part of your life. And so at that point in time, after I completed that second trial, I realized that, you know, I was getting older practicing law at that level maybe wasn't something I wanted to do anymore. I wanted to live a more sedate lifestyle, if you will, handle more uh, smaller cases. And ultimately that meant leaving the public defender's office. It is not, it is atypical for someone to be asked to keep a case when they go into private practice. But there's a lot of litigation of that in early 2011. And ultimately the judge decided that I had to keep the case. And, and it was a matter of fate, I guess. So how, how soon into finding out you were assigned to this case, did you know, you know, you're like, just, I don't want anything to do with this. Was it like, as soon as you read the case file? Well, no, you know, when I, when I first got the case, the case file was absolutely empty. Right. And look, there's, so I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into and at the <laughs> yeah. same time. Uh, there's no good cases at the public defender as office in the Capitol unit, right? They're all murders. They're all mm -hmm. gruesome you know, and they're all somebody's life is at stake, right? So right. once you're part of a case, you know, it's all right. But like I said, back towards the end of 2010, I was getting burned out on the work and not really, I, I can't claim that I knew what this trial case would turn into, but I, I really didn't want a part of it towards the end of 2010 because it was starting to get this attention. And I, I just ultimately thought it was time to step away from that kind of work. So it was kind of a combination, but really more a matter of what I wanted to do with my career. And uh, so I, it's kind of, uh, I don't think anyone really expected that to blow up because yeah, it was a really violent murder, but you know, those happen all the time. Uh, what, what do you think was so different about this one? Why it went from just, I don't even know if it's really standard, just it was low pri profile to start with. And then it really blew up over the course of its uh over the course of its history, what what do you think was the big uh, contributing factor that made that happen? You know, I get asked that question all the time, and and I don't really know the firm answer because you're right. I mean, there are a lot of cases like that. I mean, there are there were cases going on about the same time as hers that that was to me all the more scandalous, all the more salacious, but it didn't get a lot of attention, right? Yeah. When, her case first came into the media. It was like right after she was arrested, there was 
one documentary about the case. It wasn't getting that much attention. But, you know, looking back now, I can tell, you know, I was getting contacted by TV producers and wanting to go out to dinner and pump me full of wine and hope I'll talk, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> and there was this big kind of force behind it that everybody seemed to be drawn towards it. And to 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 for it to get to the point it got, I think, was just unbelievable because we had people coming from other countries to watch the trial. It was, you know, it was an all-encompassing event. Like I said, uh, live streaming, it just became so huge. And, you know, I her gender probably had something to do with it. I mean, this was after Casey Anthony. Mm -hmm. I don't know what people saw in it because, like I say, there was equally salacious cases. But there's just a just a whirlwind of factors. It's just hard to to pinpoint just one, but I think people felt an emotional connection to it, um, one way or the other, which is is probably some of the reason there was so much hate and so much passion around it. Um, you know that the defense team experienced and everyone involved in the case experienced to some degree. You just you just happen to catch lightning in a bottle. That's all. <laughs> well. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I more like I was hit by lightning because I was trying to get out of there. And uh, yeah, you know, and that was one of the things, right? There was all these misrepresentations or, or misunderstandings of why I was there. People thought I was there to, to get rich or to be on TV or to get famous or because I believed her story and things of that nature. When the reality was, I didn't want to be there. But mm. I was court ordered to be there. And as a defense attorney, I have a duty to the Sixth Amendment. I was a personal... I personally uh, don't believe in the death penalty. So, you know, saving her life was my duty or doing everything I could to save her life was my duty to the court and, and a duty I took seriously. But it didn't allow for me to say, hey, wait a minute, guys, I'm just doing my job here. And like I was mm. saying earlier, that emotional connection that people had to the case um, is part of what drew that passion, but also part of what drew the vitriol through social media. We were getting threats online. Uh, you know, I started opening my mail with rubber gloves because we were, you know, I got white powder in the mail, threatening mail, people calling my office, um, people emailing me. It was just, and this again, think, think about this for two and a half years before she was finally sentenced. That this, yeah, that's pretty bad. This was kind of my life. And that's, that's why I call my books trapped with Miss Arias because I was truly trapped for those two and a half years. As a, as, as a client, was she like toxic in any manner or was it just everyone that was around her? Well, ultimately I, I probably can't really answer that question any more than, than I've addressed in the book, but it wasn't a place that I wanted to be. Let's put it that way. And, you know, we've seen Miss one of the things Miss Arias did, and maybe this will be an indirect way of answering your question without violating privilege. Miss Arias made the choice after she was found guilty to do an interview and basically blame everything on me. You know, her defense, she made the claim that her uh, victim was an abusive pedophile. And then she tried to throw that on me and she did this one interview while the jury was literally deliberating life or death. The next morning, she gave all these interviews to the press, Good Morning America, everything else, talking about how she was this victim of domestic violence and everything else. And again, trying to throw me under the bus as best she could. Mm. The on that same token, I'm pretty sure everyone's always everyone's thought of it who's not a lawyer in those situations where you're represent, representing someone and you're pretty sure that they've committed the crime or you're it's obvious that they did. How hard is it to represent them? 
Well, you know, one of the things that we say, uh, defense attorney slogan, if you will, it's about the constitution, not the client. And our system isn't one that's just divided on guilt or innocence. It's basically divided on, can the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty? And for that to, for that to mean anything, the defense attorney has to act vigorously as they can to put up a proper defense and to ensure the person's constitutional rights. Now there's an added burden and an added complexity to that when somebody's life is at stake mm. because every single death penalty verdict goes up to the US Supreme Court. They wanna make sure that everything's done right. So the attorney is under an immense amount of pressure to represent that client with uh, in, in a vigorous nature. And there's, there's a lot that goes into this question, but ultimately, you know, we can't have a standard where an attorney says, yeah, you know what, I don't believe my client. I'm not going to give them, you know, if nobody believes the client, then ultimately they know they don't get a lawyer. Right. Oh, yeah. So it, it's not about that personal belief. And, and you think about it in some way too, you wouldn't want that just sets up the, the lawyer to be somewhat oh, of a judge. Right. So, absolutely. Well, I think you're guilty. Screw you. Right. You know, yeah. Um, especially in a public defender's office when, when you're kind of signing up for obligated for to defend both the guilty and the innocent. Mm. Now, that reminds me of a, a saying that I've heard repeated countless times, and I've actually never spoken to a lawyer about this, but uh, I'm interested to get your take on this since you've had to live through this very uh, treacherous situation. It's, and what I hear is that uh, we don't have a justice system, we have a judicial system, and that's how we have to operate. Have you ever heard that one before? I have not heard that one before, but I think, you know, we do, there, there's something in that, right? Because you know, what, what justice means to some varies to a lot of people, right? I mean, to a lot of people, and, and, and you know, when you ask people about the death penalty, when you qualify them for, for uh, to be jurors on a case, some people would have you just shoot the defendant right in the courtroom, right? Just like, you know, get it over with, they're guilty, if they're accused, they're guilty, that sort of thing. And to them, that is justice. And, you know, a lot of people might see, take what justice is in a lot of different ways, right? Like, you know, some people say eye for an eye, somebody's got to go, go, you know, get killed. Uh, if they kill, they got to do this. If they, you know, commit this crime, there's just no gray area for those people. But a justice system is one that functions best with the adversarial nature, the, the forcing the state to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, to put a priority not on vengeance, but on freedom. And that's the choice we've made. And I think a lot of, that gets lost for a lot of people when they think about their personal sense of justice. I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't know that there is a true answer, right? Oh, no, it's I think that's as close as we'll get. Question. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Now, I think a lot of people, especially in America, they really miss the, the whole innocent until proven guilty thing, especially uh, in more recent years, because they view it from the media circus point of view. So they're watching people like Jody, uh, Jody go through her case and they say, well, she's guilty. But if she was not guilty, there's really no, nothing to discern it from the public view. So we, we wouldn't even know. And then these people don't realize that if they set a precedent where she's immediately guilty, well, if they end up in that situation, then they're going to be in that same situation, whether they're guilty or not. And they really miss a lot of the, a lot of the important aspects of how our, our system works. And then you're going to end up in situations with, like yourself where you're a court-appointed lawyer 
and you're vilified for it, but really you're just you're just doing your job trying to uphold the law. Yeah, I mean, and that's all any public defender does in a constitutional democracy. We play a per, uh, uh, an important role in protecting that freedom. And you're right, people have so much different have a differing view of the ju justice system until they they or their loved ones get accused of a crime. Then they want a good defense, you know. But they don't they don't want it for someone else because they want to, you know, and look, we have such a polarized society now. I'm not telling you anything new where the shades of gray that really drive our evolution are cast aside for black and white, which just keep us divided. So we really wind up in this situation where until you can see the other side of the fence, you're vehement in your side of whatever side of the fence that you're on. Hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of gives us a lot of armchair experts that really, that, I, it's America, so I can't really say they don't deserve to have an opinion, but, you know, at the end of the day, some people just shouldn't share their opinion. But now that that gets me wondering how it really affected you personally, because, you know, if you are thrust into the spotlight on a case like this, then all of a sudden everybody hates you. That's a huge, huge change in your life. How did, how yeah, did really that really start for you? It really is. Well, you know, it started on that day of opening statements, right? I, I you know, like I, I talked about that sense of the trial, maybe, you know, garnering some publicity and, and some news outlets and things like that, right? I'll never forget the day. It was January 2nd. It was the day of opening statements. And I parked my car um, in the normal spot I do. And I was walking to the court and I saw something I'd never seen before outside the courthouse. And that was probably four to six portable studios with satellite dishes looking like they could beam signals to Mars, all plugged in, all there for the trial. There was reporters on every street corner. And it was my first notice that this was big. But even that was just a, a slight preview of what was to come with the, the fanaticism, people coming from across the country, people coming from across the globe to witness the trial. And for me personally, you know, I didn't realize at the time because I was so focused on my representation. But looking back, I realized I lost my anonymity that day. It's one of those things that you never think you're going to lose, right? You don't treasure things you don't think you're going to lose. And look, I was I had had a few cases that were in the local news, that sort of thing, but nothing like this. I mean, few lawyers go through something like this. And, you know, it just it was really a stressful situation. I think the best word I could use is hypervigilance because as the case went on and on, the threats and the interaction, you know, this interactive component, our inner id that we cast out on social media, we can put into emails and, and social media posts and everything else was suddenly being hurled at my direction. And, you know, I was 6'2", shaved head, bigger guy, easily recognizable. It was all encompassing. It was the kind of thing where I feel like, you know, I was noticed in public. I couldn't just step away from the case because it was so all encompassing. And because I was getting threats, it just really became a situation of hypervigilance and unhealthiness and just trying to kind of that bunker mentality, that foxhole mentality of just trying to get through it. And I remember, you know, that first trial, you know, kept going and going and going. And she was famously on the stand for 18 days. And I thought, okay, by the end of May, I'm going to get to, and this was May of 2013, that I'm going to be done with this trial. And I'm going to go to Vegas for Memorial Day weekend. 
And that's my, my wife was a teacher. She'd be done with school. It's kind of our annual thing. And the jury hung us to sentencing. And I was the most unhappy guy in Vegas because <laughs> I knew it probably wasn't going to be over. And this situation then, this, these threats, this, this interaction, this, this hypervigilance became my life until April 2015 when she was sentenced. And it still exists to some degree, but certainly a lot less after she was sentenced. But ultimately that became my life. And, and like I say, trapped with Miss Arias is the key because I couldn't shake her till, till 2015. And that was about five and a half years since I was assigned the case. What were they threatening you for? Wouldn't they want you on their side? <laughs> or well, they... a lot of people, a lot of people, like I said, going back to those misapprehensions, they believed that I believed her story or invented her story about her, her victim being an abusive pedophile. They believed I was there for money. I was a scumbag lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they were just mad. They thought she was guilty. They hated her. They couldn't maybe reach out to her because she was in prison. So they, I was the next closest target, I guess, myself and the defense team. I, I should be clear. I wasn't the only one receiving threats like this. We had members of our defense team. I mean, they found out where her kid went to grade school. And, you know, they were going to threaten the, they were threatening her kid. They were threatening experts in the case, things like that, because they were so irate of the things that are going on in our courtroom. And that's what I talk about when you ask about that popularity. There was something about the case that struck an emotional chord with so many people. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. That was in that was an international case, right? Didn't that happen somewhere outside the U.S.? No, no, it happened in Arizona. But oh, OK. Because, yeah. of, because of live streaming and everything else it became a worldwide sensation. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing people come, her, a woman from Australia, her dream was to go to Disneyland, but she decided she wanted to go to the Jody Arias trial. A few months ago, I heard about a, you know, a tour group that was, that was scamming people that saying that they could get into the Jody Arias trial, just running tours, you know? Um, so there was all kinds of stuff going on. Like I said, there was something about that component. And, and I think the fact that it, occurred during this when live streaming became more common i mean we were starting to 2013 the flip phones were starting to give way to you know iphones and with screens and people were able to watch all the time and so um it, it just became that sensation and like i say that lasted for two and a half years it's a uh, you know, human beings are a crazy crazy <laughs> species now i gotta imagine that that probably had some type of effect on your marriage right because if you're getting all these threats really to your home i'd imagine you know your wife had to deal with some of this as well huh yeah certainly i mean you know she's a teacher she was up on a school website for safety purposes she uh quit her job so she wasn't on the website she took care of the home front um you know obviously there was extra nobody knew what she looked like at the time so there was this, just kind of keeping it secret kind of keeping her mouth shut just kind of going about our business as privately as possible when we weren't together. So um, I did my best, obviously, to insulate her as best I could. Yeah, really, at the end of the day, there's not much else you can do, is there? No, there's really not. I mean, I couldn't get out of the case. That was it. Um, so all we could do is do our best to protect her privacy, to keep her safe. And and like I say, ask for, you know, extra police patrols, things of that nature, just to kind of um, do all we could to keep the home front safe. And I'm fortunate though, in terms of the effect of my marriage, that was the extent of it. Uh, my wife had 
and I had been married over 20 years at the time, and we're still married. So um, we got through that and, and so much more. But uh, but ultimately, yeah, it was it was it took a whole shift of uh, our lives. You know, it really did. That trial was was uh, was something. Now, why was why was Jody on the the stand for so long? You said what was it? Eighteen days? Fourteen days? Eighteen days. Well, uh, you know, look, you know, and I don't know if you guys follow true crime at all. We've had the Robert Durst trial going on. I think he's up to like fifteen, something like that. Um, you go through the story and the prosecutor has a chance to uh, cross-examine mm. and you, then you get a chance to redirect. And the other thing about Arizona that's pretty unique across the country is that the jurors are allowed to ask questions. So there was a day or two of jurors' questions and then the attorneys are allowed to follow up on that. So, um, you know, that's why that's why we somehow added up to 18 days. I mean, I... I've been in, in court once before and as a witness. And to me, just being a witness is miserable. I don't even want to be anywhere near a courthouse ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my God, 18 days of it. And, and oh, yeah, no, no, thanks. <laughs> well, the thing about the whole trial, you know, I mean, the whole trial lasted. Uh, we did opening statements on January 2nd and the trial hung right before Memorial Day weekend, like just like a few days. Mm. So the jury was in that trial for, you know, a solid five months. Now, I mean, normally for you, for with other trials, that people probably didn't dig into your life very much. But this one, they had, they just dug into every aspect, I have to imagine. Well, you know, I wasn't on Facebook and do, do I didn't do much social media at the time. So there wasn't a lot to dig. Um, like like would be the case for some of the other members of the defense team but there were certainly like i say the the threats how could you do that what's wrong with you that sort of thing i remember one of the most surreal moments between the two trials i had lost weight uh, about 85 pounds roughly and uh there i was remember this was like i say between trials so i actually had some time off i was out on the friday night maybe watching tv outside like we get to do in phoenix and lo and behold, there was the doctor, Dr. Drew uh, on TV with a panel of quote unquote experts because they were lawyers talking about uh, my weight loss and the <laughs> fact that I grew my hair out, you know, uh, because there was because there was social media buzz and the idea that I had gotten weight loss surgery and, and hair plugs at the county's expense, you know, so the, these kind of things that that perk about up to the um you know, through the internet. Yeah, it's just all, it's all bullshit. <laughs> was yeah. the, was the weight loss just related to stress or did you find out you were sick from that or what happened with that? No, after the, after the first trial, um, I really got a little more conscious about my weight. I knew it was something I needed to get a hold of. And I had, you know, we had some downtime and I could live a more normal life. And I just decided that it was time to get a handle on it. So, um, I created a weight loss program for myself, which is basically a calorie budget type of deal. And I wrote a book about it, about it because so many people were asking, how'd you lose weight? How'd you lose weight? And this was back in, um, you know, late the summer of 2013, I started on this journey um, of losing all this weight. And so um, I, that was my first book actually was my weight loss book. It, and it had nothing to do with what was to come in my life. 
Um, but it was just all dedicated to a diet that I kind of created for myself. So yeah, weight, weight loss is a pretty tough thing, especially when people are accusing you of, uh, you know, spending your taxpayer dollars to get all this, uh, essentially plastic surgery and weight, weight reduction. But, uh, You'd mentioned something just now uh, about what was to come. Uh, is that health-wise? Yeah, sure. You know, going back to April of 2015, so the case is finally over, and I've got the chance to start charting my own course now. I'm done with Miss Arias. I'm in private practice, but I had this strong sense of, I, you know, I, I, did, I was dis, disenfranchised with the practice of law. I really didn't want anything to do with it. I was, you know, so I which wasn't an easy feeling for me to deal with because I'd wanted to be a lawyer for so long. I'd built this career. I was established in the practice of law. So I attributed it to burnout, which there was some logic to it, right? Instead of just stepping away from the practice of law. So I said, okay, my wife's not working. We'll take some trips. We'll take some bucket list trips. Phoenix is unbearably hot in the summer. There's not as many people around. Businesses tends to be slow. So I'm going to go take some of these bucket list trips. And so I was a baseball fan. I went to Cooperstown. I went to Kansas City where the Negro League Hall of Fame is. And uh, I was hoping that through this time that I would reconnect to my passion for practicing law. And about August, when it's just starting to think about getting cooler around Phoenix, uh, we were about ready to take our last trip back home to Seattle. I grew up in Seattle and see some friends. And it was in that time that I noticed uh, an inflammation under my armpit. And, you know, look, Google's not a, a doctor's opinion, but it gave me a pretty good idea that uh, at least potentially it could be cancer. And so I went off to Seattle and tried to convince myself I was in good shape. I, I had had this weight off for like over a year. I was doing well. And, uh, but that the, facade I was trying to paint for myself was was ripped away and I came back and uh, it turns out that uh, I had stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and that was um, a really tough time a dark time for me and and you know I don't mind sharing this because I know that there's people out there getting the diagnosis that are going through a similar dark time and I remember I was going for a run and I by this time when I was going for this run and it in early September, maybe it was that, you know, I would need six rounds of chemotherapy and I would have to have a power port put into my chest because the chemo was so, the chemo I needed was so strong that it couldn't go through the veins and there are all these, you know, issues. And I began to wonder whether it was worth it to go through the chemotherapy because here I was in my late forties, I was still disenfranchised with the practice of law. My name had been drugged through the mud in this most public style and my reputation, everything else, you know, and I just began to wonder whether the life that I would save was one I wanted to live. And even knowing that the, the inevitable was going to be an ugly end, death, cancer was going to overtake me eventually. And I gave a lot of thought to that. And, and I kept kind of that thought private. My wife knew I had cancer, but she didn't know that I was deciding whether I really wanted to go in that chemotherapy. And ultimately, one of the things that I did is I made a promise to myself because I said, if I was going to fight for more years, more time on this planet, I wasn't going to live those years, those days in the way I had my prior years. 
you know, I wanted to change my focus, change my outlook and make happiness my beacon as opposed to, you know, I see so many lawyers that are unhappy that are going through the motions. And there's other professions that are the same way, right? Where we get to that certain age, we go, well, I'm just going to run out the clock, right? I, I, I got a buddy of mine who practice law. He's counting down nine years to retirement, right? I'm thinking, how about, you know, that's nine years of your life. So um, I made this promise to myself that if I fought for my life and was fortunate enough to beat cancer, I had a 70% chance of beating cancer. But when you, on, when, the, when the losing side of that bet is your life, you tend to for, focus more on that 30 something percent it was that, that you don't beat cancer. So um, I decided that I just needed to make a shift. I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to live my life the same way. And part of that shift was standing up for myself and imposing lies, upon, imposing truth upon the lies that my client had told me in these interviews that I referenced earlier. And that's when I wrote Trapped with Miss Arias, published it, and I had issues with this, the state of Arizona bar. And we went back and forth, and I said, I think, you know, there's implied waivers. A client talks about things in public, they waive privilege. So we fought back and forth, and we got to the point where they wanted to suspend me for four years. And I instead asked for disbarment because. I knew that if I had that crush there and whatever the length of the suspension was, it was going to be up to a, a judge to decide. It could have been six months. It could have been two years. It could have been four years. Who knows what it was. But I knew that if that option was out, and it could have been nothing, but I knew if that option was there, I would fall right back into it and I would ultimately break that promise to myself. So I asked to be disbarred. And when I got that um, you know, approval that I was disbarred, it was a good day and not a bad one because it meant that I was, it was time for me to chart that new course and go in new directions yeah, rather than just run the out the clock. Yeah. A lot of weight off the sh shoulders, but, but how many times do we just sit in a job that we're miserable at um, waiting for retirement or, or something else? You know, I've actually been in the same shoes, not with cancer, but in, in a job that I was just done doing. I did that for about 13 or 14 years when, and I made a switch. I am much yeah. happier now. Uh, but, you know, as a self-professed armchair expert that I am, uh, as, when you're talking about this cancer you that you ended up- You have a Facebook with, account for those kind of qualifications. I, <laughs> I actually do not. The only, oh. the only social media that Grizz and I have is for this show. We yeah. are not okay. really big fans of it. Although maybe okay. I should. Is, yeah, you know. that that will raise your level of expertise. But, but please that's what we've been doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I I have a a chronic illness. It's not cancer, okay. but uh, it does dramatically uh, increase my risk of cancer. So I have read a lot about you know the causes and potential factors that can help with that. And I've got to wonder if you think maybe the case had a lot to do with you developing lymphoma because, you know, a higher elevated stress level, especially for a long period of time, uh, it seems to really have a lot of correlation with developing cancer. It definitely takes a toll. Yeah, you're right. And it's one of the things that um, I knew in my heart right away that the stress of it, the hypervigilance for two and a half years that I talked about earlier was the reason that, that I caught that I cancer entered my life. I mean, to me, there was no doubt about it. And you're right, Dr. Joe Dispenza is one of the pioneers, I think, in this work. But there's a lot of studies that link the stress. Obviously, they can't be definitive, right? Because 
you can't know exactly where it comes from. But um, yeah, there's a lot of studies that suggest that stress can be a source of illness, not just cancer, heart disease, things of that nature. So, you know, that's why I always say I, I disagree with Michelle Obama. I don't think obesity is our number one uh, health concern. I think it's unhappiness because that leads to obesity, that leads to other unhealthy behaviors that manifest themselves in cancer, heart disease, things of that nature. So, yeah, I totally believe that that two and a half years um, uh, of being trapped with Jody Arias is the reason why cancer in my life. There's no doubt about it. And I'd imagine you're doing much better now, right? You've been cleared. You bet. You know, it's, it, uh, you know, it's a five-year process to become cancer-free. Um, so you're in remission after. So I was in remission six months later, which was awesome news. Um, I went public with my battle of cancer about three treatments into it when we realized that, that I was probably winning the battle. The, the tumors were shrinking. Uh, and so, you know, but it was great in February of 2016, I was in remission. And then in February of this year, uh, hitting that five-year mark, I'm now considered uh, cancer-free, which, you know, is awesome. And from a psychological standpoint, I think it, uh, it set me free from cancer in a different way than just being in remission did. Yeah. Now you're living your life a totally different way. Yeah, I mean, that process was was ongoing over those years. I mean, like I say, I wasn't practicing law. I, I wrote uh, eight books, including um, my personal favorite, Defend Your Greatness, which I took all the lessons I learned from my battle with infamy and cancer and put them into a book. And then I ultimately put them into a one-man show later. But that was always an ongoing process. But certainly something about that five-year mark uh, hit me and put me on a even even a more broad trajectory i guess i would say and when you're talking about that book you know this kind of like a culmination of your your experiences and how you got to where you are now what do you think your biggest takeaways from that particular book happen to be when i talk about defend your greatness i think about what's in our heart what we're mm -hmm. instilled with what we're passionate about you know part of the the process i talk about in that book is you know, as as children, we, we're passionate about certain things. We have things we want to do and things we want to accomplish in this world. And the, the, the demon of practicality comes into play, right? So many of our parents, well-meaning, you know, my, like I was raised by my grandparents. They grew up in the Depression. If you had a good job, you didn't quit your job because you never knew when you, you know, they, they were in a situation where sometimes they didn't know where their next meal was coming from as children. So, but everybody has their own experience and that demon of practicality steps in. And, you know, you referenced earlier your job of, of 13 years. You probably would have left that job a lot sooner if you felt like financially you could do it, right? You weren't scared. Yeah. You didn't have some fear. So yeah, I that was the biggest about, factor, yep. Right, I talk about, and, and that's a fear that we don't have as children. Now, look, as adults, I know we have to have a modicum of practicality, right? We all can't just quit our jobs and run out there and, 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 you know, drink in the park all day or whatever we want to do. But, but at the same time, we can start connecting to those things and start, you know, that, that's what I call the greatness, that spark that was in us as children is what we wanted to do or, you know, and start reconnecting to that. Now, it may not be the same as a child, like, you know, as a child, I really wanted to be a lawyer. 
But now as a 40 something, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to write books. I wanted to speak. I wanted, and so I connected to that. And that's what I tried to relay in, def, in Defend Your Great, just, just really connecting to that passion because really, you know, we can survive or we can thrive. And people that are running out the clock are just surviving. And consistent with the promise I made to myself is that I wanted to thrive. And that's a good point. I actually just had a similar thought the other day, thinking about how uh, surviving sucks. And, uh, <laughs> that's part of the reason why we started doing this podcast, because, you know, you're not going to get to go around again. You might as well do what you want to do. And so far, it's been fantastic. We, we yeah. love doing this. Yeah. And I think we do connect to things that we never thought we'd connect to when we start working with our passion and thriving instead of just surviving. And I always say one of the other lessons about defend your greatness is, you know, I think we're taught that when we do those practical things, like we keep our job as an accountant or whatever it is, right. And we, we happiness is going to follow. We have the 2.5 kids. Happiness is going to trail when we do those things. When that's not always the case, we put the cart before the horse, we put it backwards, right? why not let happiness be your beacon instead of those practical things and hope that happiness follows along? Yeah. I, th I think a lot of people are kind of realizing that on their own now, because you're seeing, a, especially right now, you're seeing a lot of people who are just like, I'm not happy in this job. I'm never going to be happy in this job. So screw it. I'm going to do something else. You know? Yeah. I think we're seeing that with uh, COVID, right? I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of people not wanting to go back to their jobs because they started realizing that there's something else out there for them. And yep. obviously COVID is a horrible thing, but the benefit of that might be that you start thinking about how am I living my life? You know, like I know a lot of lawyers are go to, we're going to work every day, everything else and driving, commuting. They're like, now I can only stand going, driving downtown, driving to the office because yep. they got used to a different kind of lifestyle. One where there was more happiness in it and less stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one it, of the uh, one of the few benefits of of COVID happening. Yeah, it opened up a yeah. lot of minds. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, and it it it's a it, it forced us to look at the lives we're living, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in in terms of everything, like if you're unhappy in your house, then what's going on in your house? What what mm -hmm. life have you built? If you're un, if you're quote unquote bored, what life have you built? Right, so. Um, all those things then were put under a microscope mm. and people were forced to kind of take a look at those things. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Kirk, you, you got a lot of books that you're, you're kind of backlogging now that, you know, everybody's going to be able to read these after we uh, put up a link to your website. But I'm curious if you were, if you started writing after the big change in your life where you started writing these books, or if you were kind of just like, did you journal or something before that? Uh, I didn't journal much before that. I mean, lawyers obviously write a lot. They write a lot of legal briefs and, and things of yeah. that nature. Um, but I never really had the urge to write. It was something that came with the shift in my life. I mean, I so many people were asking me about how I lost all the weight. Yeah. So I, you know, decided to write a book about that. And then when I was staring down uh, cancer, and that 30% chance that I wasn't going to survive cancer came into play. Then I was staring down the idea that I wanted to impose truth upon this Arius's lies about me. 
And then, you know, a couple of fiction books came out and then, you know, uh, Defend Your Greatness came before the fiction books, actually, where I wanted to teach those lessons. And all my books have been things that just I wanted to, wanted to emanate out of me. They just were kind of there. And I just felt the need to um, to bring them forth. Some of the books were cathartic. Some of the books were just in me and wanted to come out like the fiction books, you know. Um, were just fun for me to do. And so, you know, it's just part of the creative process. And I think, you know, it kind of got me to a place now, like I, now I'm doing a little acting, a uh, little TV work, things of that nature, just and my one man show, just getting me to that creative place. And again, it goes back to what we said earlier, when you start being led by happiness, you don't know where you're going to go, places I never thought I would wind up going. I mean, when I left law, I thought it would wind up being a life coach for lawyers because I saw so much stress around me and fate hasn't led me there. Fate's led me to a whole different set of possibilities. Mm. Yeah. I was just curious about that because, uh, I actually recently started writing myself okay. uh, probably, probably within the last year and I'm yeah. finding it to be a very enjoyable experience. And it's come up a couple of times in the show. You see, Grizz here is barely literate, so he doesn't do yeah. a lot of writing. Uh, <laughs> we, I actually do a lot of the writing for the show because he's just like, no, nah, yeah. I'm, I'm just an ape, Jerry. I, I can't do the words. Uh, but I actually recommend to a lot of people that they start doing that. Uh, and we had an episode recently where we were talking about people not realizing that their story is a lot more interesting than they think it is. And then you end up in a situation like you, Kirk, where you, you're writing these books and it turns out people want to read it and you actually had a story that, that it's, you know, it's getting out there. Yeah. I think writing like, like I referenced earlier, can be very cathartic, whether it's published or not. Right. There's so many people that want to write yeah. books and do different things. And, and I actually started offering uh, coaching in that regard to help people publish their books and get their, mm -hmm. get their stories out because these, this, these days, you know, you don't need a publisher. You, yeah. you just need an Amazon account. Right. And I think it can be cathartic. Um, I think it can be helpful to people. I think, you know, one of the things that's overlooked in our world is that even though the specifics of our journeys are different, there's a lot of common themes that are out there. And I think that people can benefit from learning the stories of others. And I think, like I say, if you just write just a journal, you connect to yourself all the more. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes you all the more happy. I read I re read a, recent, a quote recently that, that was so great. It says, if you do everything with the intention of learning more about yourself, you can never fail. You know, with, with that radical change in your life and everything that's been going on, what, what do you do full-time now? Is it just uh, the writing and uh, what you've decided you want to do now? Yeah, I guess I don't really do anything uh, full-time right now. I mean, mm -hmm. I do... Um, legal commentary for court tv uh, on occasion right. uh i i my writing's been stalled out a little bit um i've started a, a small career in acting i guess i'm pursuing some acting jobs and mm -hmm. um, back in january close to the time i was declared cancer free i was uh, blessed with the opportunity to be cast in a a fitness reality show called radical body transformation mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like uh Biggest loser, only more like, uh, you know, chubby to fit kind of thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. flabby to fit kind of thing. Right. So, right. And I've lost uh, around 35 pounds with that program getting stronger. So um, I do a lot of different things. You know, I, I do my one man show. Um, unfortunately, I created that right before COVID. Uh, I do my one man show when fate allows. I speak. Um, 
I do different. I just do what comes up and, and what makes me happy. And then, you know, like I say, the writing has been a little bit on hold, but I'm, I'm hoping to get back to that uh, this fall, but I'm just, I'm just having a blast doing all the different things that I do and, and, and talking to great guys like you. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, some court TV type of stuff. Is that like uh, judge Joe, Joe Judy? Uh, what is, what is it? Judge Joe, judge, judge, judge Judy, Judy, all those. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> judge, judge Judy. No, I, I would like to uh, have judge Judy's job, but uh and her bank account. I think she's yeah. making billions. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, Court TV is uh, kind of like a, I guess the best way to describe it would be a news network for trials. Okay. So they broadcast trials and they talk about different trials and there's commentary and that sort of thing. So, so is that a, more like a, a true, like a true crime type of thing? More, more related yeah, to that? Yeah. I mean, it's not like okay. the documentaries you'd see, but it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's actual live trials and commentary on those trials. Oh, that. right, right. Yeah, yeah. My wife watches tons of true crime, mm-hmm. almost exclusively what she what she consumes for media. It's, uh, I I actually I have to take a break from it because a lot of that is so negative. I can't handle watching it all day every day. Yeah, you know it is a huge genre though. You know, a few years ago we talked about some of the things I'm doing. Back in 2017, uh, I spoke at a, a true crime convention called CrimeCon. And it was their inaugural one. And I th- they had over a thousand people in a convention center in Indianapolis for a first time event. And it was like me and Nancy Grace and um, some other people came and, and talked and, and people just loved it. And they're on their fourth or fifth year. Of I would say thing. there's a lot, there's a big following. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. It, it's growing rapidly now. Yeah, no doubt so, about it. So when you were at that con, what, were you there kind of as uh, Jody's lawyer or just a, uh, as like an expert in that field? Well, a little bit of both, but I, right. I spoke about, uh, you know, the case a little bit, but also mm-hmm. about the death penalty in general, um, because that is a prominent issue for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to hear perspective on the death penalty and, and, and things of that nature. So um, because, you know, the death penalty is kind of one, the most common thing I'd hear about the death penalty is how different it is to talk about it in theory yeah. And then be confronted with it. Right. When you walk into a courtroom, you get a jury summons. You think you're going to be judging somebody's DUI or their domestic violence. And all of a sudden you're being asked to judge whether somebody deserves to live or die. And it takes a different face. So um, I'm always thrilled to, to talk about that subject. So, yeah, that was back when I was doing a little more uh, public speaking as well. So when it comes to the death penalty, uh, being against it, is that a moral decision for you? I think it's it's twofold. I think there's morality to it. I think if we decide that killing is wrong, then that means that uh, that is just as wrong for a person to do as for the mm. state to do in my name. And also, I think that there's a reality that it 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 the the government gets it wrong. Juries mm-hmm. get it wrong. I mean, we um, there was a case out of Texas where the guy was accused of burning his family to death. And right. turns out that the science that um, quote unquote proved him as the killer was wrong. So not only was he arrested and not get to grieve the loss of his wife and his children, he was executed before they realized that he probably was in fact innocent. And there are many of cases where people are on death row and have been exonerated. We've had a couple in Arizona with shady bite mark evidence and uh, things of that nature. So, yeah, I mean, just from those two standpoints, you know, you think 
it's not the kind of you can't go back and fix it once somebody's executed, right? So right. Um, goes back to that vengeance justice system, you know, versus judicial system comment you brought or, or point you brought up earlier is this idea that sometimes our judicial system gets gets it wrong. Now, there's only a few states that still do death penalty, right? Well, I wouldn't say a few. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's becoming... Uh, less frequent, less popular. A lot of states are doing away with it. It does become a very expensive endeavor because of what the Supreme Court uh, requires. I mean, you have to have two lawyers on every death penalty case. There are automatic levels of appeal designed to ensure that things like a wrongful sentence aren't you know, carried out, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so it becomes expensive. It becomes time consuming. And it just to, and and there was a you know a year or two ago if you follow the news, the American Medical Association prohibited their doctors from being a part of it. Somebody has to administer that lethal dose. There's tough times getting the uh, the cocktail that that caused death to you know getting supply of that. So a lot of states have just decided it's not worth the hassle and that life without parole is is good enough. So if I'm looking it up now, and it's actually more states have it legal than don't. But how many actually practice it? Because you don't hear about it too often anymore. You don't. Yeah. I actually no. remember uh, when, I think it was a couple of years ago, they were having issues getting their hands on the uh, the mixture and the, uh, yes. the chemicals that they needed for that. And I think, didn't they end up having an issue as well with, uh, it went very badly for one of the people that they were uh, carrying this out for? There was a there was a box execution and, and that did that did bring up issues um, yeah. related to the the execution methods as well and and you're right I'm I'm surprised to hear that more states have it than don't but yeah um, it is also true that it becomes uh, a matter of choice I mean it's a matter of prosecutorial discretion mm -hmm. so a state could have the death penalty but just choose uh, not to, not ever to use, use it. it which is yeah, another was, one of those things there was three states that that had yeah. it was gray it was like it's legal but they had some they had notes on it but i mean yeah. it, most people i think have this idea that with the death penalty if someone was you know if someone was put to death by law that they'd have closure with it and realistically you're not going to get anything out of it i mean at the same token are the how are you going to feel good if they're in jail for the rest of life i have no clue i'm not in that situation <laughs> I'm not in that situation either, but you know, I remember I go back to my first death penalty trial, and I was a co-counsel, so I was second chair, and that was the only time I've ever been in a courtroom on a case I was involved in where the death verdict was read, and all I really experienced in that courtroom in that moment was pain. I tell this story a little more detail in my one-man show, but it was just pain. There was no you know, the victim's family, they didn't, there was no, I, I, maybe they thought that there was going to be that moment of bliss. Yeah, but, but there's not. I, I don't know that, that it ever really exists. You know, I don't know that, that anybody really feels like they get anything from it other than, you know, maybe brief fleeting moment of vengeance. And, and it's hard to imagine that that is of much value. Yeah. I mean, then you're going right back to where you were right before, right? Yeah. You know, you're still grieving. It's not exactly. going to change that. You're grieving in a different way because really the vengeance might at best maybe, you know, delay the onset of the grief, right? You're so mad. You're so mm -hmm. mad. 
you want them to to die and then when they do then the grief comes flooding in mm -hmm. so you know it's it's a hard it's a hard I, I understand people that want that and i don't you know because i've not been in that circumstance i don't place judgment on it no. but i certainly wonder um if the satisfaction is really worth all the hassle because we're also talking about years of appeal and and you know the average from death sentence from sentence to death to execution is 15 years and so you know are those years well spent or the or those life without parole and let the healing begin all that much sooner so you yeah, know why does it take so long that's another thing because of the appeals that i talk about so there yeah. um the, the idea that we don't want to you know execute an innocent person or someone who didn't get effective assistance of counsel so you know it, i could go into this long boring process <laughs> but uh, you know the fact that it has to go all the way up to the supreme court and it bounces back and forth um should tell you all you need to know just why yeah. it takes so long yeah why even still have it you know yeah yeah and bringing bringing this back to the true crime tv that we were talking about earlier uh a lot of the stuff my wife watches is um like cold case type of files and yeah it's really disturbing because I, I i watch it with her and it's really disturbing to hear just how many people have been executed and then later on the case is reopened because they found out that they killed the wrong person it's yeah it there's no lot. doubt about it it does happen more than most people think and it is that that vengeance fueled you know kind of attitude um that brings people to that conclusion that somebody should die and they don't always look at everyone they should look at right i mean innocent yeah. people get convicted of other crimes as well but you know confirmation bias can kick in with the police departments and jurors and you know look i've never been in a position where i had to make that decision but you know, the, the one time I did, I remember the jurors being in tears after sentencing someone to death. And mm. there's studies about jurors having PTSD from oh, having yeah. to even go through that trial because whatever murder case they're looking at, um, they're not, even if they're, even if they're a true crime fan watching on TV, they're seeing it at a level that they've never seen before, right? They're seeing the autopsy, they're seeing different things, they're connecting to people on a different level. And it can be a very traumatic experience for jurors to go through for, and then to make that ultimate decision. Hmm, absolutely. And I'd imagine you're probably glad to not have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, I, I'm glad to, I love doing the commentary on court TV. It's, it's so much easier to talk about cases and be involved in them. Um, so much more fun. Um, so I enjoy doing that. I kind of, satisfies that intellectual relationship I have with the law. It kind of keeps that, keeps that going, if you will. But yeah, in terms of um, not being in it, not being in the grind, not visiting people in jail, not having someone's life in my hands, because no matter what you think of the defendant, the other aspect of the death penalty trial is that that defendant is always somebody's son or daughter. It's always somebody's brother or sister. And those people are always going to be looking at you to save the life of their loved one, no matter what horrific act they've done. Right. I mean, you know, people aren't going to stop loving their kids because of, of what they've, what they've done, even if it's the, the ultimate horrific act. Oh, definitely. And, uh, I actually, I've, I've considered that many times myself, you know, watch being exposed to these true crime, true crime shows because of my wife, I'm constantly thinking, 
oh, what if my kid becomes a, a serial killer? How would I even handle that? Uh, <laughs> so that's why I say I'm better off not watching any of these. Because that, those are the, that's where my mind goes with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, um, those, those shows, it's, it's interesting. Those shows can really, can really lead you astray. She must, she must be jealous you're here talking to me, right? Or, or maybe she'd want to yell at me. I don't know. Oh, she was actually excited to hear that we were going to be talking to you because you know, oh, good. she's familiar with the case. So she was like, oh, that's great. I want to listen to this one. <laughs> it's the only one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's probably a pretty good place to, uh, to tie it up here. Uh, where can our listeners find more information about you and get their, get their hands on your books? Sure. If they want to go to kirknermy.com, mm-hmm. they can. Um, that's my w- website, obviously. They mm-hmm. can go there. There's links to all my books on Amazon, uh, all the books I've talked about, and some I haven't. Uh, there is, if we ever get back, if I ever get back to the point where I do events again with this surge, I've been kind of hesitant to, to schedule anything, you know, with limited capacities. But, uh, you know, all, any events I have are listed up there. They can check out what I'm doing with uh, the RBT show. They've seen my weight loss. They're inspired by it. They can, they can look into that. And uh, they can connect with me personally. I have a my fan park account, and I offer coaching through that and, and one-on-one interactions and, and inspirational messages and everything. So everything I'm up to is, is on kirknormie.com. Awesome. We'll post up the, uh, the link to that too. So, you know, listeners, go check them out because there's – there's only so much we can cover in a one or two hour episode. So there's a lot more for you guys to, to dig up on this one. And Kirk, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a fantastic conversation. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed talking with both of you. It's been great. Thanks. Woo! <laughs> As you can tell, I'm doing Jerry spot today because I barely talked during this episode because I was bored out of my skull. <laughs> Uh, I was not in case you could, you couldn't tell I was thoroughly engaged and I like Kirk's story. Grizz is not so easily entertained. It's not that I didn't like his story. His story was fine. It's just, and maybe he was bound legally not to talk about stuff. I just wanted of course. more of the bits of why his life went to shit with it and why she was evil. Like, well, there's only so much you can cover in a one hour podcast. He does have some books and other material you can go to look at for that. That's true too. I don't know if maybe the books, maybe that's why he held back. I don't know. But it's, that it was could the be. stuff I was hoping we'd get more into. Uh, if you look in this episode and you're watching it on YouTube, you can probably see when I'm just out there. Yeah. Well, Grizz wanted to hear more about the case, which is understandable. I did too. But there are confidentiality laws that prevent him from really going into detail on that. As I'm sure some of you know, it's not just on uh, cop shows. That's a real law. So, uh, you know, I focused more on what happened to him and, you know, the, uh, the effects that it had on his life, being the court appointed lawyer and vilified for doing your job. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Did you want to hear more about the court case? Did you like hearing more about what happened to him? Tell us your thoughts about it. Do you want to see me stare off into space more? <laughs> Do you want to see Grizz naked? Oh, God. Uh, more that's, like- that's, I propose that when Grizz is bored, he slowly starts to take off clothing until he's not bored anymore. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. Go fuck yourself, San Diego. It's remarkable how similar the pattern of love is to the pattern of insanity. Oh, my God. God, I fucking hate you. <laughs>